0: Hi everyone, I hope everyone is having a wonderful day. In today's episode, I interview Professor Elsner, a professor from The Ohio State University. We talk about the various aspects of computational linguistics and dive deep into some other topics. I hope you all enjoy and let's get right into it.
1: Um, So I'm a computational linguist. I work at Ohio State University uh, and I've been there since around 2012. I have done kind of a few things in my career. Uh, I started out looking at the coherence of long texts. uh, And in my postdoc, I picked up an interest in infant language acquisition. I've been working on uh, how people learn phonetics, phonology, and words. And recently, I've also been working on uh, morphology, the uh, internal structure of words. And then I've done some other things as well.
0: Yeah, those topics all seem super interesting. Can I ask you, what inspired you to get into the field of computational linguistics?
1: I've been interested in artificial intelligence for really a long time, uh, even back till high, back in high school. I entered college intending to major in CS and learn something about AI. I took linguistics, which I had no idea what it was, honestly, uh, my first year to fill a social science requirement and started filling in more courses uh, like that in my program as I got more and more interested in how that interacted with what I already wanted to do. I did some um, CS work in various AI labs as an undergrad, uh, and then went to a PhD program and uh, at Brown University in Rhode Island, and then uh, to a postdoc in Edinburgh, and then
0: here. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, Could I just ask, uh, what was kind of the work you did in the uh, AI labs for CS?
1: So um, I started off as a data annotator for some of the graduate students. Uh, They needed data to test their systems. Um, I worked on a parsing team and was checking whether the parses were correct. And um, I worked with uh, a guy named Joel Tetro, who went on to... uh, Quite uh, an illustrious career, actually. Uh, At the time, he was working on pronouns, and I marked up some of those. I also worked on an undergrad research project called Mabel the Mobile Table, uh, which was a robot that would introduce itself and tell you about a conference program. It was hit or miss as a piece of robotics, I have to say, but it was a really fun project, and I I got a, a huge kick out of working on it.
0: That seems like an exciting project, and I assume there are probably a large amount of challenges that you face along the way. Were there some challenges or questions that you had in this field that especially inspired you in your time as a professor, or just on the path to becoming one? I
1: guess it's an exciting time to be working on uh, natural language processing. Uh, There are new methods you know practically every year and the field has changed astronomically since i was in graduate school even though that it's not that long ago um it's still unknown i think how to learn language from scratch we have models that learn a lot about language uh but the question of how these kind of linguistic nuts and bolts uh sounds words etc are 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 learned i think and are learned using the amount of data and the kind of data that humans uh, have exposure to is, is still really up in the air. I think it's also interesting how mathematical and informational constraints shape the kinds of languages we see. Um, there are questions about what sorts of languages are possible and uh, what sort of information processing people can and cannot do to understand language that uh, I think we're making progress on but
0: are certainly not there yet yeah for sure and kind of just wrapping up the background could you share maybe a hobby or just any fun fact um that you'd like to share
1: well so um a fun fact for a linguistics audience anyways that i'm learning uh welsh with a group of uh, osu people we're all on uh, duolingo and doing the welsh course there um We've read uh, Harry Potter, Alice in Wonderland, and now uh, the first. We're reading the first book of a, a series of unfortunate events uh, translated into Welsh. And we have a, a Welsh table every week where we speak Welsh to one another as best we can. Um, it's a fun way to learn something about a, a language that I kind of never thought I would study.
0: Yeah, and actually, is there anything you've noticed in yourself when kind of learning a new language, either just? Things that relate to your research or just kind of tips that you realize that are maybe be easier to learn a language a certain way um, kind of just anything in that area
1: well something that i noticed that did inspire a research project that i worked on uh over the last few years uh, is that when i started learning uh i could basically not remember a sentence in a transcription exercise duolingo makes you listen to a sentence and write it down um and I'd always have to play it five different times because I could only remember one word at a time. Um, and learning the language makes it much easier to remember long chunks uh, because the, the effort of remembering uh, is much smaller when you know what the possible words are and which ones are meaningful.
0: Yeah, super cool. Um, so I know you mentioned child language acquisition earlier. Could you kind of walk me through some of the basics um, around child language acquisition? I
1: guess um, something that most people would agree uh, on is that kids learn language from interaction and exposure um, from people speaking language to them or around them. Um, Some language ability is detectable long before the first spoken word. uh, And uh, there's a rapid upslope in the kind of, first through second, through maybe third year. uh, That is what most people think of as kind of the classic language acquisition process. Um, But language abilities also continue to improve improve measurably through the the teenage years. Um, So you can really see that that upslope as something that you're laying the groundwork for before it becomes visible and that you keep working on after uh, improvements are, are harder to detect outside the lab I think we all agree on that, and then that's where the fights start. Um, one of them is the good old kind of universal grammar one. Uh, to what extent is language learning the result of general versus uh, language specific cognitive abilities? Um, one of them is how much we should, uh, how much credence we should put in the idea that certain amounts or kinds of input are key to particular kinds of uh, outcomes. If you ask linguists, they'll tell you that the kind of high order, uh, you know, the first cut conclusion is everyone learns to talk, so why worry about it? Uh, But people in uh, education or speech pathology can get much more excited about small differences in inputs and outcomes. Um, And I mean, you know, as a computationalist, I'd like to say that uh, it's still unknown how to model this process. And that's something that we all really want to know.
0: Yeah, so kind of switching gears a tiny bit. I know there was something really interesting you said at the beginning of a talk you gave, and the quote was that the phonetic and phonological abilities in infants suggest a rapid and powerful learning mechanism. Would you be able to tell me a little bit more about that hypothesis?
1: So like I said, language learning um, clearly begins before the first spoken word, uh, even though uh, it's harder if you're kind of interacting with a, a non-verbal uh, infant to really know how much they understand. Uh, you can bring them into the lab and do studies with, say, an eye tracker or with various other clever devices people have figured out over the years. Um, and uh, elica Bergelson at Duke uh, has done some really brilliant work on this, for instance. Um, and you can see that Um, Very early on, they can distinguish their native language from other languages. Uh, They know their own name. Um, By six months, they seem to know some nouns. They don't necessarily know everything about these uh, words that adults know. Um, Their ability to distinguish sounds from one another in a uh, language-appropriate way is still evolving. Um, And you see... um, evidence of phonetic learning kind of going on between six months and 12 months where gradually they learn finer distinctions between sounds that their language uses and throw out the ability to make distinctions between sounds that uh, their language isn't going to uh, require. Um, All of this, I think, means that The kid's going to have to do a fair amount of work while they still don't have a large vocabulary to support this kind of learning. And they still don't have a lot of meaningful social interaction because they're not talking yet. So, although I think it's very important to think about learning in terms of being taught things, you know, mommy saying, Look, that's a duck. Can you say duck? And the kid says, Duck. Um, By the time you've Gotten to that point, there must have been already a lot of learning to uh, to, to kind of get through uh, to be able to produce these sounds, remember what order they came in, figure out what categories they belong in, learn this frame of look that's a. Um, so that, that's what I mean by saying that it's kind of uh, rapid and powerful uh, even before the kind of spurt of uh, of words that you get at like two years or something.
0: Wow, I didn't even know that it started before the first word is spoken. Another topic I saw was something about distributional learning. Could you tell me a little bit more about that and how that plays into child language acquisition?
1: Yeah, so a lot of computer scientists or people who've been around computer scientists came up with a fairly, um, maybe, you know, fairly obvious uh, idea about how to do this kind of early stage of learning, sound uh, categories so that you can recognize your first few words. Um, The idea is that you remember a whole lot about what you hear. Um, You keep track of uh, some kind of acoustic measurements of each sound Um, and you build a histogram in your head of where these sounds are in the acoustic space. Uh, You can think about this as like just putting dots on a map or something. Uh, And then um, eventually, you'll build up some peaks maybe around uh areas on the map where a lot of things are filling in and there will be some valleys between them because maybe there aren't some i think you're not hearing things in those areas Uh, and eventually you can draw kind of a circle around each peak and say this is my category system it's a good story it's very easy to simulate on the computer it works for some classes of sounds in some languages uh but it seems clear after years and years of trying that it also also doesn't learn our entire categories uh, system. Some work um, actually that I was on um, uh, the committee for the student who did this uh, project, uh, Kasia Hitchenko, who was at uh, Maryland then, um, basically started out with the assumption, oh, we're going to fix distributional learning so that it can learn everything and went off in the direction of, no, we're actually not going to get this no matter what we do. There are some categories we're never going to be able to learn this way. So this is what I mean by saying there's still kind of a mystery out there, I think.
0: Yeah, and it seems like there's a lot of differences in how infants may hear language um, and that can kind of like impact their learning as it seems. Could you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we know that what you know shapes your perception uh, and uh, and your memory of what you perceive. Cognition is kind of a matter of using limited resources to do what you want to do. Um, and that shows up over and over again throughout cognitive science. You can do the same thing with chess players. Sit an amateur down at a, a chess board and... Uh, Give them a minute to study a position and then ask them to replicate it on a blank board and you'll get all sorts of mistakes sit so a chess master down and uh, ask them to to replicate the position and you'll get a much more uh, accurate and intelligible position and what's more when they do make a mistake they'll make a mistake that leads to some kind of legitimate chess position um they might switch two pieces around so that, say, white is still mounting an attack on a particular part of uh, Black's formation. Uh, whereas an amateur might play something that's completely illegal uh, with multiple checks and, and kind of incoherences all over the place. You can think about hearing in the same way, right? When you know a language, you tend to hear uh, words or things that could be words. And if something is obscure or uh, if there's noise or if there's silence, you still have pretty good hypotheses about what fills in the gaps. Infants don't come to the table with any of this. Uh, So their ability to pull information from the signal is going to be much more cognitively intensive. They're going to be able to do less long-term prediction to help them along. Uh, and they probably won't be able to remember uh, as much about what they heard, uh, even a few milliseconds afterwards. There are some fun perceptual illusions you can do, um, not being an infant, uh, where uh, you hear a, a word, say, where someone coughs in the middle of it, and you'll perceive the missing phoneme because you know what it's supposed to be.
0: Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and I've definitely seen that in my own life, too. Um, So it's good to kind of see the the more science and computational aspect or just hearing behind that. And so how would you say that like morphological systems play into our daily lives and or uh, child language acquisition in general?
1: Well, so, I mean, in our daily lives, it depends on what language you speak. Um, In English, uh, we use morphology word parts, right? Mostly to mark things like plural nouns, the past tense, the third person for verbs. Some languages get away with less morphology than that. Uh, Vietnamese, for instance. Some languages use it for more things. In Spanish, you need morphology to be polite, for instance. Uh, Whether you're calling someone to or instead depends on uh, how you inflect the verb. Uh, And in many cases, you just don't use the pronoun because the verb carries the uh, pronoun information uh, along with it. Um, and in, at the extremes of this, languages like Inuktitut use morphology to express things like cause, location, and desire, which we would, um, even in Spanish, do with uh, separate words. Um, in terms of kids learning, well, you know, you have to learn whatever your language is, um, and it takes kids a varying amount of time to learn these, kind of, uh, these different kinds of systems. We don't necessarily know as much as we would like to about, um, about all the different kinds of languages in the world and uh, how long it takes to, to learn them for a, for a child. I think it's interesting because uh, the systems vary so much. And from the part, point of view of an English speaker, some of them may seem to be needlessly complex. For instance, uh, systems may have a lot of irregular uh, inflections, so to speak, although I don't really like that term. Um, but um, words like, say, child, children, uh, where you would expect childs. It seems like if we did have childs there, uh, nothing would be wrong with the language. We would still be able to communicate just as effectively. In some sense, this is a historical relic, which is there to make it harder for people to learn it. Uh, The question of how these things arise, why they persist, and under what Um, circumstances, they can either be created or destroyed, I think is, uh, is kind of an interesting open question in morphology.
0: Yeah, And I know you talked a lot about the language type, and it really depends on the language. Is there a difference in how fast children uh, can learn their languages depending on the actual language itself? Like, would you say it's easier or harder to learn languages like English um, rather than other ones, maybe like Romanian?
1: Well, so I can tell you that certain subsystems of a language uh, may show faster or slower progress from one language to another. So, uh, for instance, we know that kids start producing Turkish inflectional mor- morphology earlier than they do in English, uh, both because it's more regular and because it's more useful. Uh, we don't use morphology for all that much in English, uh, and the Turks use it much more. Um that doesn't necessarily mean, though, that any language is going to be easier or harder to learn. I think it would be hard to come to an across-the-board conclusion like that. Even if there's some subsystem that five-year-olds are still having trouble with, and there definitely are, even in um, even in English, uh, understanding pronouns like himself or herself, for instance. Uh, I think it's still difficult for five or six-year-olds. They kind of get it, but if you give them the most confusing cases, they don't do what adults do. But I wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't say, "Oh, well, that means five-year-olds quote don't speak English," right? So, because it's such a gradual process, I think it's hard to really say, "Well, when do they, you know, when do they learn a language?" What does that mean? Do you have to be able to, you know, write a sonnet, order a pizza? Um, ask mommy for another cup of milk, right? Um, Your communicative needs change from age to age and so do your abilities.
0: Yeah, and I know you touched on kind of like, there's no definitive way to see if a language is learned faster. And I know this is kind of like a hard question that probably people are trying to figure out, but how would one go about maybe figuring out if a language is learned faster generally um, or is there conclusive evidence that it, there's no like uh, bias in that sense, like no language is learned faster than another?
1: Well, so I don't want to say, oh, all languages are equally complex, whatever that means. Um, there does seem to be a trend in the field towards saying, no, there could be some real differences here. Uh, but I also don't want to say that it's easy to say, when have you learned a whole language? Because like I said, there are all these different subsystems that we would need to test. Um, we can look at a particular system within a language and we can look at either how it's being produced or how it's being understood. And usually what we see is first kids understand understand this feature only when a lot of evidence points towards the correct answer and they have a lot of time to think about it then they understand what the feature means kind of at under normal circumstances and then finally uh they understand even confusing cases which are disambiguated only by this feature and all the other other evidence points in the in the opposite direction and sometimes you know, then we can still see their abilities creep up if we use an eye tracker or a reaction to time paradigm to check how quickly they come to this conclusion. And so, I mean, if even if we're asking, you know, are they learning a particular thing, like how to understand reflexive pronouns, or whether they can tell a question from a statement because of the question intonation at the end of it, or something like that, right? It can still be years of work with a large population of subjects and a bunch of different methodologies, taking us from the younger age end of the range to the older end of the the range to really figure out uh, the the trajectory. So to do this over and over again with a, with a bunch of different languages is you know is the labor of lifetimes, uh, and I really admire my experimentalist colleagues who are putting in this work. Uh, to, to tell us these things. But like I said, I mean, you know, asking like, when, when are we done learning English is just such a macro question that I, I'm not sure I personally think it could, could really be answered.
0: So this concludes the first part of this podcast. Thank you so much everyone for listening. And if you guys would like to listen to the second part, it'll be out soon. Thank you so much. And I hope everyone has a great day. Goodbye.